Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. You expect of me a speech, and I, Thane of Stonyford, have only one to give. These past few years have been long, my companions. You have fought bravely alongside your friends, who have found a fellowship born only from adventure. Let this be the hour we draw swords together once more. We are all born to die. We carry that truth with us always. If your day be today, then so be it. Mine may be tomorrow, or mine today and yours tomorrow. It matters not. What matters is that you know in your hearts that you represent all that is good in this vale of Anduin. As does Stonyford, with its rushing waters, towering tree, ripe meadows, and good people. Bjornings, woodsmen, and friends from across the Wilderland. You are Stonyford, and Stonyford is you, each and every one of you. And it is the ground beneath you. Fight for that ground. Fight for Stonyford. Fight for all the Vale and the people and the goodness in it. Should you fall, for fall some of us may, let it be in defense of that goodness, of friendship, of merriment, of joy. And should you triumph, let it be so that you may live long, happy lives in peace. Perhaps we shall feast together once more at midsummer. But first is the time for courage, courage for our friends. So I say, fear no darkness, but arise, men of the Vale. Hello, Cal. Hello, Josh. That was uh, very powerful. Well read. Well written by Josh, by for his character Thedric for the a titled episode, "The Siege of Stonyford." A lot of preparation went into this episode. I know from uh, well for us for this episode, for the session that we played for you as the lore master and for us as players, a huge amount of prep went in. I had fun writing that speech, which uh, if anyone spends any time watching movies and television, I cobbled together out of many many other speeches and influenced by loads of other speeches. I really enjoyed. I uh, that was the way I prepared for the session that we had that day. Was I watched loads of epic battle speeches because. As we talked around the pod, Theodric is not really a fighter. He's much more of a diplomat. And I knew that going into a big battle, the most important thing I would do is give the speech at the beginning. And I thought, right, this is where I'm going to focus all my preparation. And I did. And I think it came off quite well. And hopefully it set the tone for the rest of the episode. It it made the whole battle. It, it was felt epic. When you gave that speech in character... And then we had this huge combat, which I think lasted over two episodes, two sessions of the game. And bearing in mind that in that time it was locked down, we were playing for very extended periods of time. I don't know how long it was. I think it was something like 14 rounds of combat. I mean, we talked about that before. So I've written down on my little sheet here. Crazy combat. And it was like 14 rounds of combat with a huge number of players, and a huge cast of NPCs and monsters. So this is what we're going to talk about. The Siege of Stonyford, which we've alluded to a little in previous episodes. We've, we've talked about the village of Stonyford uh, and where it sits in our game. We've talked about Theodric, my character, who became the Thane of Stonyford, which gives us a bit of narrative drive here. And we've talked a bit about what we were doing as adventurers around this time, uh, exploring the Gladden Fields, the the danger and gathering shadow at the Dwimmerhorn, seeking allies, while also building this village of friends, um, which, as any good lore master, game master, dungeon master, you took full advantage of to get us uh, very invested into uh, a combat. So we're going to talk about probably what led up to the siege in terms of prep from your side and also narratively. And then a bit about how to run such a big combat. Yeah, so I think we've we've discussed what was happening. So you, in that area, you'd 
been sort of setting up in Stony Four and you've been tasked by Radagast to go into the Gladden Fields, which we've talked about, yeah. and investigate some lights. And you'd found some uh, evil works of the enemy, the orcs around, they were searching for something that was lights, and you had made um you made a connection that something evil was residing in the Dimmerhorn and needed to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And so after that you came back and I think your your plan was very sound. You you sent out people to different parts of the Vale, you were asking for aid, you basically spoke to everybody and you were very open about what you were planning to do. You were very clear like we're going to we're going to go to the Dimmerhorn, we're going to um we you I think you'd heard there's some prisoners there. Yeah. And so you, your plan was to go in, break out the prisoners and, and come back. You'd done a really good job sort of setting out the the environment and also the kind of priorities. So we'd spoken um, to Bygrol, one of the hobbits in the Gladden Fields, who talked about how some of his family were prisoners at the Dwimmerhorn. And I think he'd also revealed that he knew there were other people, not just hobbits from from Gladden Field, but others from further afield were prisoners. So yeah. you just already established something mysterious is going on. There are people in imminent danger. And as a party, we had already been um, asked by Radagast to kind of investigate. So we were already on a bit of a collision course with whatever was happening there. And I think the fact that we knew there were prisoners there uh, and that they were in danger, some foul work was happening, gave us as a party of, you know, heroic Wilderland uh, men impetus to, to crack on. And we maybe naively uh, went about that in quite a public way. We were like, we'll rally the banners. You know, we've spent a long time role-playing the politics of the area. We've made a lot of friends, some of which was you know, pretty hard. We've won patrons from doing quests and we thought, right, well, now's the time. Like, they're all good people. We'll call on them. This is a threat to all the people in the Vale because, you know, Mountain Hall is nearby. So they're a threat. Stonyford is nearby. Radagast and the Woodmen are nearby. Even Bjorn's Hall and the Old Ford are not that far from here if there's a, a presence of orcs. So our instinct was, and I think I'll, I'll take a lot of responsibility. Theodric was, you know, a, a sort of diplomat. His mission was to speak to all of those people, to warn them of the danger and get any aid or allies or advice that we could. In hindsight, I did see a flaw in the plan but only after our village was invaded. Yeah, and I guess you didn't know, like, that maybe you can't trust everybody that was around. And I think for me, it kind of settled in a bit of a theme of this area, which is that it kind of flies under the radar in Tolkien's works, mentioned in passing. And I I always was wondering when I read about this area, like, Radagast is really close to Dolgadur, which is a a stronghold of the enemy. And these people, the Bjornings and the Woodmen, they live, you know, they don't have the walls of Minas Tirith. They don't have the protection of Erebor. You know, they don't have strong allies on the doorstep. Maybe, you know, the Galadrim help out a little bit, but they're slightly further south. They're not there with strength of arms. And so what is it that has led them to be able to survive in those areas? And I guess it's, you know, they just maybe not seen as powerful enough to, you know, for the Witch King and whoever else is in Dolgadur, Saur, you know, the necromancer, Saur, you know, they're just not seen it worth their yeah. while, like to, to wipe them off the map. They, they're not appearing powerful. And whether that's a deliberate design, like Radagast is sort of the same, isn't he? He's, he's bumbling, he's, you know, <laughs> yes. interested in animals, but yet he had a really big impact in the events of Lord of the Rings. Not all of it positive, but I guess he did in a way lead to, he tried to do his best. Um, that's all we can do in life. Um, that's all we can do with the time that is given to us, Calvin. Yes. So, the... yeah, I think taking that and then switching around to be like, well, we'll gather the strength, we'll gather the mm-hmm. legions and stuff, is it, kind of the antithesis of what those people, how they get by and survive. It's much yeah. more low-key and hidden. We learned a very valuable lesson which I think we have been then have applied throughout our many, many sessions since then is that we can't trust everyone. And even if we as characters, you know, want goodness in the world and are are, are trying to be heroic, not everyone is. And that something we've talked about a lot before the idea of the shadow always being kind of on the doorstep, that that means we have to be, we have to tread quite carefully about what we do. We can't 
make a big noise and stomp around the Vale of Anduin and alert the enemy to the fact that we're gathering, you know, the, the strongest army or not army, strongest force that's been seen in that area for, for some time and not expect there to be consequences of that. Yeah. Like all the all the times that they succeed in Lord of the Rings, it's part with a couple of exceptions, but you know, the Fellowship of the Ring is is a small endeavor. The Hobbit is a small group that sneak in, and arguably they don't really achieve anything other than getting Lake Town burned. <laughs> but uh, why is it called that? Who knows? Um, we'll never know since it's burnt to the ground. Yeah, burnt to the ground. All the records were burned with it. So, yeah, <laughs> I think when you were praying for that, I, I don't know when I decided to, to that this is how I was going to react. I think it wasn't something that was always my intention. And this maybe comes on to our first point for discussion just in general, which is that I think to run this game. So, you know, obviously if you're running pre-written adventures, you know, sometimes like it's particularly the pre-written stuff for aim, I think it's quite like, it's quite for me. Like this happens and that happens. It's all written out. Like you, you've, you interacted the story, but it's not really player directed. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the game that we like, and you're doing a really good job of this in Strad um even though that's a pre-written thing is saying that the world reacts to the players and that yes that's what's great about an rpg over and above a video game is that the decisions you make will have really big impacts and it's much more free form and so whether your players succeed or fail uh in some sort of endeavor or adventure that's going to have knock-on effects and here it's really like Oh, this new Stonyford place is sounding quite threatening. Like all these people are like gathering <laughs> armies. They seem yeah. to be organizing defense. We don't want this. Um, let's do something about it. And so I I think it was maybe when you were taking like ages and ages prepping stuff and um making a big deal of it. I was like, well, there's people around that, you know, aren't interested in you and succeeding. And um they're gonna go tell someone. And if you if you take enough time, then yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll do the same thing, um, which is probably slightly easier to organize for Mordor because they've got really good administrators. <laughs> renowned, they're renowned for their taskmasters. <laughs> um, so, I think this does speak to something about the game not not just sieges and and battles and everything, but all role playing games is that all decisions made by the players should have consequences in some form they should all have an impact on the game in some way and choosing to take longer to do something in other words choosing to prepare should have consequences that are good and bad because the reward is we could potentially be better placed to to do something you know we've maybe got new weapons or or new abilities the the downside is by taking longer we give other people, other characters, other forces, mm. time as well. And you, you played with that well. Tying that into the themes that Tolkien sets out and like how how would they react in this setting? You know, large forces are, are often not, um, you know, often end in in defeat, essentially. Because like it's called a long defeat in many ways. Um, and I think that ties into things like resting as well. You know, like say you're in a dungeon and you, you want to take a short rest for an hour yeah. in normal D&D. It's like, I think it's a bit unrealistic to say like, well, all those goblins in that dungeon are just going to sit there and wait for you to attack. Like, no, they'll like restock all the weapons. They'll heal back up. They'll maybe set some new traps or they'll block off a cave entrance or they'll they'll lay an ambush or, you know, they'll, they're they're smart. The enemy, the, what's it? The enemies know what they're doing. Monsters know what they're doing. The, the monsters know what they're doing. Great book. Well, I think one of the best books, if you're applying to DM, is fantastic. Uh, and the blog for the monsters know what they're doing is online, and I would recommend people check it out. Uh, I think the resting mechanic is a really good example, because I think, and I certainly learned this, when you first are learning to play role-playing games, um, and I think D&D is probably the, the gateway that a lot of people have, and you're, you're DMing. What the rules often don't make that clear is that because it's a game that's actually about like resource management, as the the lore master or the dungeon master, a big part of your job is wearing down the resources of the players, like testing their resources. 
And I, I was probably too generous with my very first party. They wanted to rest all the time. Naturally, I think it comes from a video game mindset of like, oh, I have taken some damage. Let's immediately heal yeah. all the way back up. Again. Like The Witcher, where you're just like, I will rest for eight hours now. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. And there's, there's no... Just nothing happens. It's like, it's like, where the fuck have you been? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing all this time? I used to let players do this. I say you used to let them. I, I didn't... I never responded to players doing this in any way. It was much like The Witcher, where it felt like the game was just on pause while they rested up. And I used to think, wow, they're really quite powerful. And it took a while for me to get out that video game mindset and think, no, no, if they rest, great. They've made a good decision. The world continues while they are resting. And I think what happened with us at Stonyford was basically that on a huge scale. Okay, the party are going to rest and regroup. The world is going to continue forces are going to you know muster and are going to attack stonyford i think what happened next probably what you did next probably made the difference between one of the best sessions i've ever played in which is what it was or us being absolutely infuriated by what happened yeah. and that was that you used a way of telling us that this was going to happen so it wasn't a completely out of the blue overwhelming battle which i think would potentially have been a bit annoying instead you used and if i recall properly i think it was one of the eagles came to visit carhu uh, yeah you had an interaction with an eagle i think um named Meneldor, which is in one of the books so gua here's the king of the eagles and i think Meneldor's his brother or something along those lines and it had an interaction where a car who had removed some sort of foreign or something from its yeah. it established a rapport and um, which is interesting because there is discussion that the woodmen are particularly hostile to the yeah. great eagles because they steal their sheep and there's some ongoing politicking that's uh Torvald, uh one of the characters is just trying to do to resolve that um which i think he rolled an actual 24 in some sort of audience check out there's some sort of silliness about that and he had been tasked by guahir to keep watch on this area and had been in communication with radagast and that had all been previously established. Yep. And then he came to you and said, I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but uh, you know, along the lines of there's movement in the Gladden Fields, they're mobilizing, they seem to be coming in this direction. You've got this much time. And it was actually, I was quite, I think, quite clear with what yes. you had. Uh, which is great. I think uh, it's a great tip for any lore master, game master in any role playing game introducing a time limit of some kind and it can be very short it can be something that's going to happen in a minute it can be something is going to happen in a month but introducing a time limit a time pressure gets the players excited about whatever is going on i can't remember exactly what the time was but we were in the field south of stony ford we knew there would be some time to, i think it was maybe two days that we they would the force would be upon us yeah it wasn't a huge amount of time it was enough time that it it was pressurized that you couldn't just gather all of the forces around you. It was, yeah. it was maybe it was a couple of days and like the journey rules, um, you know, you were like, oh, we do we have enough time? And and it led to some really interesting debates about how you would use that time. Yeah. And it wasn't I, I don't I think what was really good was if you had just attacked us with a huge force at Stony Ford, it would have felt like we had no choice in the combat coming. Now we could rightly say that the combat was caused by what we'd done. Um, you know, we we triggered the attack, but we wouldn't have had a choice about the battle massively. Whereas by telling us it's going to happen in this period of time, and that it pretty much is inevitable that the the orcs are going to get to Stoneford, it's not forcing us to have a battle. There were things that we could have done. We could have used that as a window to go to the Dwimmerhorn. If we, we that was an option, we could have been like. We're going to sneak in while the forces are away. As characters, I don't think we ever would because we cared for the village. We were invested in the village. We, we wouldn't just let it burn. Yeah. But I never felt like you forced us into the siege. It felt like we chose to go back to Stonyford and we chose to set up a siege, which made it much more exciting. Yeah, that's interesting way of thinking about it. I, at that time, I was quite, still quite new to DMing and I don't actually know... I think I basically just introduced this as a like, oh, this is going to be fun. And then prep later on, which is sort of my approach often is, yep. like, you know, I'll just, you know, like, oh, this feels right in the moment. Like, this is what the enemies would do. And then I'll worry about how that's going to work out. And also I'll find that if I over prep, then because we do quite a free form game, it, it becomes 
you know, you could have a different path. But yeah, there was loads of options. You could have set up an ambush. You could have um, left the village and knocked it down and gone and like holed up somewhere else. You could have gone to Dremerhorn. I don't really think I thought about that that much. I, I think I kind of assumed that you would go back to Stonyford and defend it, given how invested you were and how much work you've been doing on. I think you just finished building a new hall, yes. which you were all very proud of. Um, and I, I think that's what's interesting about it is like if you give people something to care about and then threatening that can be a really effective tool so it's not only just fight a battle but it's also like defend the people and defend the village and yeah um you know what, what you're working towards you, you you were really invested by this point which made the battle incredibly tense and that doesn't have to just be about places we we had a game of our ongoing game of curse of strad recently which i run for the group and a combat which I, I I thought was pretty fun. You guys did well, but you all said was particularly good. You had recently rescued some children from a very dire situation and were returning them to a place of safety. And for one reason or another, um, a long-standing enemy caught up with you before you were able to get them to a place of safety. The battle itself wasn't that complicated. I think there were there were a few more of you than there were of the the enemies. But the fact that you had the children with you completely changed the context of the battle. And it rather than it seeming that you were, you know, heroic and you could just slaughter the werewolves and, you know, storm ahead. Werewolves aren't that frightening. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying this. The first time you fought the werewolves and you got the drop on them, you just, you absolutely demolished them. I feel it's completely changed the party's view of how powerful they are. <laughs> But anyway, I think much like with Stonyford, having in the battle something you care about beyond just winning makes it so much more exciting. Yes. You're so much more invested and it helps the role play. Um, something this has just reminded me of, um, there's a thing in in like creative writing, so prose or, or screenwriting, which is good for writer's block, which is something I know a lot about, which is if you're ever stuck with how to push a story forward, and this is true in any format, Often what you should do is you should, what would be the worst thing that could happen at this point in the story? And if you're stuck, just do it. What would be the worst <laughs> thing for the heroes? So audiences hate coincidences that are good for characters. They, they hate that. It, it feels cheap. If like, oh, like, oh, we've just found the ring here on the ground. You'd be like, this is utterly ridiculous. Audiences love coincidences that help that hurt the heroes. So if an orc just finds the ring on the ground, audiences love it and it causes chaos. And I've found DMing sometimes when I've been on the back foot, maybe you've done something unexpected or I don't know. Or there have been cases where I think, oh, the plot's a bit oh, it feels a bit muddy, like I, I don't know where we're going. Just have something terrible happen and it completely energizes everything. And I think this was exactly that. That's Not true. that we were stuck, but basically what was the worst thing that could happen? Oh, our beloved village is going to get burned to the ground. And I think that's very infitting with the, the context of this is between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings yeah. uh, time. You know, th there's not a huge amount written. So you've got a lot of freedom, but things are declining. Like it's a slow defeat. Things are going badly wrong. You know, in this age, it's not the age of heroes. It's, you know, uh, terrible things are happening. So you've got pretty free reign to just, and it also wouldn't, wouldn't make sense if it was like, uh, yeah, oh, um, there's this hugely powerful group of people in the Anduin Vale um, who are, you know, defeating all the enemies. Like, why didn't they come and help? Um, <laughs> in all the rings. Join the fellowship. Maybe that, maybe we'll get to the fellowship of the ring when you guys will, will take the ring. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who knows? So um, let's talk about the... So we've talked about the lead-up, and you were warned by this eagle that the enemy were coming to Stony Ford, and get, you were given some time. And I think what you did was you sent out various NPCs, and some of the PCs uh, went to Woodland Hall, Mountain Hall, the old four in Woodman Town, with, with letters and communication asking for aid. Um with the expectation that hopefully some of them would come back. And was there anything else? So you, you sent out riders asking for aid? Uh, yeah, riders asking for aid, also just to, uh, a warning, basically, that you know this was happening. And we did know that Sony Ford might fall. And actually, if it did and we hadn't sent out warning, it could be a massive problem. We then wanted to reinforce Stony Ford um, 
as or fortified Stony Ford as much as we could in the short period of time that we had. We were very excited about this, and we had a, a good sort of dialogue with you talking about how we had limited time, so we couldn't just do everything, but we could brainstorm some some traps and fortifications and we do some roles because there's time pressure for it and if we succeeded they would potentially then have a big impact on the battle uh, and things that we did were we created i think there was already a small wall but we added the wall around it it wasn't a wall but there was like a hedge like in the same a way hedge. That Bjorn's. there was like a small hedge more to like make a windbreak um uh, yeah, there wasn't any fortifications apart from the, the existing ruins that are described yeah. there in the book. We added a bit of a palisade wall, which involved um, some of the characters making athletics checks. They needed to travel to cut down trees and, and prep. And I think you did a good job of help make, allowing all of the characters to contribute. So I think both Torvald and Theodric, who are uh, scholars rather than fighters, um, I think they could roll intelligence checks rather than like strength checks to basically contribute to the the fortifications i think yeah torvald had a, like an overseer designer yeah. role runin was using his carpentry tools to yeah. like do joins it was actually like a really fun session i remember it quite dearly in terms of you, you you're being very creative you're coming up with ideas and because i was using this um, map making thing called incarnate at yes. that time i could just edit the battle map and so every time we played there was a new bit added on so a new house being and added and um you you know you you built walls so i put them on you had like little mounds that you put over it we left uh, the entrance where the road kind of cut through we built a pit trap um there which was important and a lot of these things that we rolled for you said that depending on how well we rolled and how well we did it would have an impact mechanically on how good yes. they were. So I think I think the way that we did the trap was depending on how, how much we succeeded in creating the trap would then affect the DC for an enemy to get across the trap, which was really yeah. exciting because it felt like each individual thing we would do, we knew was going to have an impact on this, this future battle. Yeah, I think, I don't think you get that much in, in fifth editions and dragons. Um, or at least the games that I played in, because because often the pace of the game is is so rapid. Like yes. you're, you're in you're in a situation, you're doing this, doing that, doing this. There's not much downtime, so you have all these like we were talking about this earlier on before we were recording about tool proficiencies. Yes, and it's very rare that you're in a situation where you've got all this prep time. I think critical role like they they tend to take a long time prepping and and doing stuff, but even then it can be quite situational. Whereas I think in aim because it's you don't have magic and you have maybe a slower pace and the rest mechanics are slower that you can bring in more of this preparation planning and so although there's a lot less stuff you can do the rules are less developed and the subclasses and you know there's, there's a lot less options it does lead to a lot more creativity yeah i think that's true you know, in the same way that, like, I have a computer sitting in front of me, which is incredibly powerful, and I can create <laughs> so many different things on it. But I think it's easier to be creative with a, with a simple piece of paper and a pen because you're not you're not presented with too many options. Maybe that's yeah, not the I, best analogy. No, I actually do know what you mean. I think, and I think the way that we went about this was exciting, and the time pressure made it fun. Because if we'd had infinite time to make Stony Ford fortified, we would have done loads of different things. And, mm. you know, we'd have ended up probably like some outrageous marble keep or something. But no, it was like, actually, we have a hedge. <laughs> if we you just grind long enough on this mini. <laughs> 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 We're just going to Minecraft this. Where the hell right does the marble keep come from? And, 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 yeah. uh, we... We couldn't put a wall like every like I don't think the wall even went all the way around. We had to choose. We were like the enemies are coming from the south. We're going to build part of a palisade wall, which we knew meant it didn't stop the enemies getting in. It just affected how long it would take to get in and where their point of attack would yeah. be. It it felt that we had decisions to make and all of them had consequences. Yeah, you had a certain amount of time and you discussed like, do you what do you do? So you barricaded up the the old hall was one thing you did. You yeah. closed up one of the back doors. So there's a little fence there. Um, you shifted some rocks in the fort to make it more difficult for people to cross. 
And yes. I think someone was going to scout on the West Coast because you weren't sure exactly where they were coming from was the other thing. Yeah. You didn't know like which route they would come. Uh, you had the palisade wall, you put pit traps. And just a slight sidebar there, there I was just reminding myself of what I did. There are rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th yeah. edition, which covers traps. It's actually... It's pretty good. Like, there's a lot of stuff about like what the DC can be, different types of pit traps, um, there's mechanical traps, and gives you a rough. It doesn't say like this is the exact rules. It just says this is a range. And so I took that, and then your checks that you rolled to produce them set where on that range the damage and uh, the uh, DC would be, um, which worked really well. The traps, I think you rolled pretty high on because you put a lot of resources into making them good. And he also, um, did you do anything else? I think you just sort of stockpiled arrows and, or you set up um, holes on the top of the towers. So, because you were very conscious that there were some more vulnerable members of the village that probably weren't combatants. And you set them up with like bows and arrows. So there wasn't even like, it wasn't just building the place. It was like all the people there. You were, I think there was even a discussion about like, you know, saying to people, you you know, we can set you to safety and everybody in the village was like, no, I want to contribute this to my home. I will fight for it. You know, even bringing in that character of the people there. There was a big decision about what we would do with people. And also, again, with it being a role-playing game and not just some, you know, simulation computer game, if we wanted some of them to leave, because we were worried about them, we had to persuade them to leave. And for most of them, it was their home and they were willing to stay and, and to fight, or at the very least, they would stay inside and they would provide some kind of support, whether it was you know, with healing or helping us restock or activating traps. So there's a lot of prep. It was, I think what movies and TV shows do very well it was like a preparation montage, which people love before a big battle. Yeah, We got little snapshots of different people doing different things. Carr, who was moving the boulders in the, in, in the river, and he was going to be stationed there to basically hold the ford on his own. Uh, Runin was, was prepping where he was going to fire his arrows, uh, you know, the ranges. What, how close did we have to wait for the orcs to arrive? Before, all, all this stuff. You know, how many volleys will we get? There was a lot of prep and I think everyone really enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed listening to it and like, I think I was adjusting the map live as you were doing it. So it was really helpful for me. Basically like the prep, it was like, I was, my prep session was you yeah. guys talking about <laughs> how you wanted to prep and me implementing it. And I, I, before I was very deliberate in that before you had that session, I knew what they were going to do. Like I knew the enemy's plan. Because I yes. sometimes I feel it's, it's quite hard to, you know, you, you're, it's not us versus DM sort of thing. But when you are prepping something, it's hard to remove, like, what do I know because I'm DMing and I listen to the players? Yeah. What would the enemies know? That That's quite tricky. So I think I'd written down, like, the rounds of combat, when different people would arrive, how many of each type of enemy there would be. Um, I'd set up all their profiles. So I had a very good idea of what you were going to be facing. Um, and I think I maybe dropped some hints about stuff, but you didn't know the exact numbers. Um, so that's the preparation. What about the battle itself? What do you remember feeling? I think in my head, I was going for a sort of Helm's Deep vibe. Yes. It was raining. It was dark. That was the, the vibe I was going for. It I'm had sure that. that and across. I think the reason that battles like that are so meaningful in, in literature on screen and why this worked is because the battle, there was an inevitability. The, the characters knew the battle was coming. They weren't just ambushed, which gives a very different, ambushes are great, give a very different flavor though. You don't have any time to think, you're just straight into the thick of it, which is fun. There's something ominous about knowing that the battle is coming mm. and that waiting and the fact that Theodric prepared the speech, which did have mechanical effects because oh, yeah. the horn that he used um, is actually a, an item which gave a buff if he succeeded on a charisma check. So I gave the speech and then rolled a charisma check. And if I succeeded, I actually cannot remember exactly what the mechanics were. Um, 
I think it maybe gave everyone advantage on their first attack or something, or something like that. I can look it up. I've got um, Thedric's. Oh no, Thedric's character sheet's not on roll twenty because you were using. No, because it was pen. There was that whole time. that whole time that you were in Lewis or something, and you could. Yeah, yeah when I was away, and play as the character. Yeah. Uh, but that and that was his kind of role. That was him getting to use his 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 charisma and intelligence. And I remember the way the information kind of dripped out our scouts had spotted them some of them were across the river and so would be attacking through the water and that's where Carhu was stationed with uh with Theodric so Carhu basically on his own was going to try and hold the fort and Theodric a healer was going to back him up and and kind of heal him and we'd kind of paired off in the group um so that we knew that we didn't want anyone to be completely on their own because that you know the action economy once you go down could be really difficult to, to save someone so i think we all basically buddied up and we had a good mix of kind of martial and ranged combat uh, and at the time we had isambard who is bert's uh, hobbit character who's a, a rogue terrifying okay. uh, basically was sort of flying solo throughout stony yeah. he's a fullback just... he was anybody that was yes got free to take down <laughs> and i think that our basic strategy was we needed we knew that they were going to be able to get in we needed to thin their numbers as much as possible using um, volleys of arrows. Car, who needed to hold them off on the river as long as possible. And then our plan was to fall back into the, the, the Great Hall, um, which we would barricade. And it would basically be like a siege almost in two stages, um, which we thought would be quite cinematic, much like in Helm's Deep, actually, when they fall back to the, to the keep. Um, and that's kind of how it panned out. What was exciting was that you NPCs that we'd sent for, named NPCs we knew, actually did arrive like just in time for the battle. Yeah. And so we had these kind of allies, and you'd done a good job, and I have a lot of questions for you on this, of kind of how do you prepare for a large pitched battle when actually the rules for combat are kind of designed for small skirmishes like really they're designed for five or six characters versus some monsters not yeah. a whole village versus a whole army so so what prep did you do there yeah i think there's a lot here about cognitive load theory which is i won't go into the details of but i learned a lot about for for, for work and uh about like you you essentially have a set amount of mental capacity and um you, you can fill that up with things that are important um so like in intrinsic load i think it's called or domain load is uh, it doesn't really apply but there's, there's basically other things which are called extraneous load and that's things that are complex that don't add anything to the experience when you're doing okay, right yeah. and in this context that is things like the admin the initiative order rolling dice so what i would say is if you're doing a large combat and you've got lots of people get rid of that or if you're <laughs> using roll 20 so if you're playing in person right then just have a set damage like it's not quite as fun, but if you just say like if it, if a goblin hits, it'll do five damage. Done, right? That that takes out some. Um, basically, everything I was doing at this point because I run quite a few combats, and I was like, I want this to be as quick as possible. I want the NPCs and the enemies goes to take no time. So all the time we're playing because it's ready with like six players. There's quite a yeah. lot of time between your goes. Like I think you're all really interested in what the people are doing, but. You know, it, it, you can drag a little bit if people are taking too long. So simplifying everything down, I think, is one important thing to say, you know, all these enemies will go in the same initiative order. Um, I'll set it up so it's really easy to, to roll the dice. Mm -hmm. um, I'll simplify the profiles potentially. So if there's things that are like a bit of a pain to run, like if so-and-so and then get an additional damage dice, I'm like, ah, that, does that add anything to the experience? Not really. Like if there's going to be, if I'm going to put time and effort into running an NPC or an enemy, does it have any meaningful impact? Or if it's yeah. just like a bit of extra damage, nah, that's getting just rolled into the profile, like the set number. So that was one thing. And then I think the other thing was like, I had established the characters that were there. And before the battle, I said, how do you want to run this? And basically gave control of sectors or like groups of people. Yeah. To each person. So Carhu was holding the Ford and he also had control of a couple of people around that area. Um, I think Thedric was holding the back and had control of, you know, so everybody had a section of the battlefield. 
that they had their character and then they had like a couple of NPCs. Yeah. Which meant that you had a bit more to think about. So it maybe slowed it down. But at that point, like I had so much to think about in terms of like I knew the turn's order and you I had a plan for what the enemies were doing and I wanted it to be feel like they had a plan. Yeah. And running all them and keeping track of all the character sheets was already way too much. So if I could delegate as much as possible that helped it made a lot of sense and actually i think giving us control or at least letting us roll some of the dice for the npcs in our kind of little area added to the epic feel of the battle because it felt like you know you as the lore master had more to do because you're handling loads of monsters in different areas but it felt like we also had like our own little units to play with it felt like the battle had scaled up mm. um and it had the added advantage of taking admin away from you, which yeah. is, is good. Yeah, plus, plus. You know, I think I'm very happy. And I think we're really lucky in that the, we've talked about this before, but there is a lot of experience in the group. It's not like I'm not the forever DM. And so I can really lean on the mm-hmm. rest of the group. So I think that's maybe the third thing over and above, like simplifying the rules where you can, giving control to players of NPCs, um, which is fun for them and easier for me. But also delegating some of the rules management Um, so can you delegate if you're playing in person delegate initiative order because that's that makes it a lot easier or um you know the traps i think i sort of delegated that a little bit or like if there's any rules questions that came up like james is our, our rules expert and he's always looking stuff up and that's really really helpful um, like we were playing yesterday and he, he looked up a couple of things just on the fly without even really needing to ask him to do. And it's just, it, it just takes some of that load off yeah. you so that you can focus more on the things that really make a difference to the game, which is like, how do the enemies behave? Maybe adding in a bit of role play or like adding a bit of extra description, not all the time, but like trying to add things as, you know, the mechanics and the rules and the numbers, they're there. And they are needed because otherwise you just say, oh, I win. Like I, I jump off the cliff, <laughs> I do this amazing attack and it's awesome and everyone loves me. Great. Okay. That might be what you want, but I don't think that that, I think what you need is the mechanics underlying it. But as a DM or the lore master, I always feel like the thing that I'm trying to add is like the feel of it, like get you yes. into that mood. There's a description that the communication using the words and that that's quite hard, I think. Um, you have to really think about what you're going to say. You do, and you want to... You as the DM don't want to create moments, but you want to create a kind of canvas so that the players can make these heroic moments in the game. And I think you don't want to force them, but you want to make sure they get as much of the spotlight as possible so they get to do the cool things. Yeah. I love that the way about Matt Mercer does it when the, the the famous lines of how do you want to do this? Yes. And I think I, I, what I love about that is that he gives people freedom to do some of that narration and storytelling. And I think that was another thing that we did in the Siege of Stony Ford by giving you control of other characters. Because if it was just like me saying like, and Anzovald does this, and then someone, you know, this character does that, you're like, oh God, this, this is just like... You know, it feels a bit like you're listening to the commentary of a football match rather than actually participating in the yeah, game. Yeah, but then you've got your your NPCs backing you up, and you you maybe like do this awesome, and then and then you do all those turns together, and then and then I get to narrate at the end, like, okay, so you know we've been over the ford, and we see the car who's fighting off the orcs, and there's arrows flying overhead from them, like giving a little summary of what's happened in that section of the battle, and then move it to the next one, and then so we were sort of like building up this you know, like a film, you know, that if there's some sort of action and there's multiple participants in that, yep. you're, you're jumping between them, you know, like in all the Marvel films, they're, they're quite good at doing that when to make the action interesting rather than yeah. just being like hit or miss, damage, no damage, you know, yeah. mechanical effects. At what point did the next stage of the battle happen then? Because various people came in, we had a lot of monsters coming in, but NPCs did arrive at different times. And there was a, a moment when... Uh, Malbeth, played by Brendan, who we've had oh, on the pod, man. he arrived. He wasn't there, if memory serves, at the beginning. But he yeah, the actually, player Brendan wasn't wasn't there. Yeah, he wasn't there, but he actually arrived in the middle of battle. Did that so many times of him? Oh, it was great. <laughs> we were because pl- we were we were playing on um, 
online. So we were on video call. And so he literally just appeared on the screen and his character arrived in the thick of battle, which was so exciting. And it felt like the battle moved to another like phase of the battle. Yeah. So the phases were essentially written. So you, there was like the initial, like, I was thinking about how would they do this? Well, they're not expecting much resistance. So like some snagger scouts would come in and there was this first line and you, you know, you made quite quick work of those. There was a lot of them, but it wasn't too challenging. Um, and then we had some more like the standard orc warriors at the core of the army. And that was, you know, bogging down. I was wearing down your resources. I knew which turn order these were all going to happen on as well. So regardless of what you did, um, the first wave was uh, the Snaggers. And then I think the third round, there was going to be more orcs. And then um, the Uruks were going to arrive. And then later on, something else happened. And by wearing down your resources it really ramped up the tension rather than it all yeah. being right at the very beginning i think also if i'd introduced everything right at the beginning you you wouldn't have stood a chance and it also allowed me to be a bit um i think it's so hard to prep what the difficulty level is going to be what the challenge rating oh, is yeah. with six players and like eight npcs and all these defenses no idea absolutely no idea what needs to challenge you so by doing it like this you can say, hmm, that was quite easy. I'm going to add a bit more orcs in. Yeah. And paste those tokens. Oh, oh, they're not doing really well. And I, I think I, it resulted in a battle that meant that you kept feeling like you were doing okay, and then the tension would ramp up. Yes. And it got to a point where I'm pretty sure everybody thought you were all going to die, and it was hopeless. Oh, 100%. I, I definitely reached that point, and it felt earned on your part and our part. Like, it felt like we'd done really well. A few maybe mistakes or missed roles we maybe misjudged something and we were wearing down and wearing down we lost some big npcs some of us i think went down and needed a bit of healing and needed to be dragged towards the hall we reached a point where i think we were getting barricaded in the hall yeah, it basically got like... to a point where you're like sound the retreat we need to leave like yeah everyone was getting overwhelmed there was a couple of people that were doing okay but most people were badly injured and Malbeth had arrived on horseback with reinforcements and had used one of his character abilities, which was like Elbereth, I can't remember the exact line in Elbeth, Elbereth something that I think Aragorn says, or is it maybe Frodo, but uh, like a really powerful ability, uh, which unveiled his like royalty and his like his um, his power. And as a Dunedain, that was like a huge moment. Uh, and it felt like that was like the, the turning the tide and it went back. And what, what I'd done basically was ramped up the tension until it got to a point where I could sense that you were all like, oh God, we're not going to win. And then that's where I stopped adding anything else in. Because basically I was like, I need to get to a point. Like, what what do I want? Well, I, I want you to, to win ultimately. Like, I don't want to kill the whole party because that's yeah. not fun, is it? But I want it to feel really, really hard and earned. And I want there to be a chance that you all die because otherwise. Yeah. And so ramping up to that point and then forced you to enact your backup plan of retreat. And that, I think, worked quite well. Um, not everybody likes being challenged that much, um, but I think you have to play to the whole party, don't you? I absolutely loved it. And actually, just while we're on this, before we go into the go, before we zoom into the Great Hall, I was watching some of uh, Matt Colville's old videos, who I know I, I speak about a lot, and he inspired me a huge amount in terms of how to DM. He talks about this a, a lot, about how you judge the difficulty rating of a, uh, the challenge rating of an encounter, and about that difficulty of like, oh, if you amend the encounter on the fly, like you change the number of enemies or you change their hit points or whatever, does that spoil it for the players? Because it no longer is real. It's this fluid thing that you're just adjusting to match them. And I was like, that's a really difficult question. And he said the way he always framed it, and I've always thought this was helpful, is players should suffer from their own mistakes, not from the mistakes of the dungeon master or the lore master. So if I'm running a game and I misjudge how powerful you know, a, a monster is and I put in, the players shouldn't suffer because I've made a mistake. Yes. If they make a bad decision that's on them and they yeah. they might lose their character but they shouldn't lose the character because oh actually i thought they could face a hundred orcs and they definitely can't well you did so do that doing... later on in the campaign um ran yeah, away we did actually. actually but doing doing it in waves is a good way of doing that because you can keep the balance and it yeah. doesn't feel cheated in any way i have absolutely no problem with balancing like that and to be honest that's how i always prep 
encounters like that is I essentially have like some get out of jail card if I've badly misjudged it. And there's been a couple of fights. There was one later on where it was like a crossroads and I was like, I've really underestimated how difficult <laughs> these enemies are. Oh God. But it was too late. Like everyone was on the battlefield. I couldn't just delete a character. I couldn't just yeah. be like, yeah. oh, that, that person trips over and dies. You know, like, <laughs> so I was like panicking slightly there. Um, but I usually have like a, like in this one, I knew that if it went terribly wrong and I was about to wipe, wipe you, I knew that I had the eagle up my sleeve. I was like, there's an eagle around, might come and help. It didn't in yeah, the end. Good. But I, I thought about that. Um, and I think I came up with some reason later on about why they weren't there. And the other thing I had was uh, the very sort of last thing that was added was there was a, 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 a rider in black arrived. <laughs> and um, this was sort of the foil to Malbeth's uh, royalty and veal. You know, he goes by this fake name and it was sort of, it was there with a purpose, you know, which I think makes sense that there would be a black rider at the Dwimmer Horn, you know, yeah. looking for the one ring is pretty important to Sauron. You know, who's going to be there? Um, and uh, they they um, put a, the black breath on Malbeth, causing him to go unconscious and just left of him, which was a real hard moment, actually. I was really was unsure really, what yeah. to do, but I, uh, I was like, well, this is what they would do. So I absolutely loved it because it, it, it really shook us, I think, because the battle swung to and fro. At times we felt we were winning. At times we felt we were losing. It was really inspirational when Malbeth arrived. And then seeing uh, a, you know, a monster, uh, a Black Rider Ringwraith, so much more powerful than the party, just demonstrate that power so easily. But without spoiling the game, by effectively just taking one character out yeah. and then leaving, and that's what was really there. daunting. Yeah. They, they weren't there. Or, or rather, they maybe thought that you were... Like, they're not like... They're not going to charge into combat and like strike people down left, right, and center. That's not what they're there for. They're mysterious. They're shadows. They're not fully revealed. They're not their full power because Sauron's not declared himself. So, you know, it's more of a shade. It's a, it's a threat. So that was quite exciting to get to use that. Yeah, and I think you know you you were basically barricaded enough in the hall, and it was very much like Helm's Deep. They're in barricaded up inside the Hornborg. It was that very much like hopelessness. I think yeah. was the the feeling at that point. And again, I think there was a session break. So you came back, you'd planned about like, how are you going to barricade the door? You know, what are you going to do when they break in? Because it was inevitable that the orcs would, would break in eventually. There was still quite a few of them left. They were heavily armored. So you had a lot of discussion about like, how are you going to do this? I think one of the NPC, a major NPC died as well. Yep. And I think it was perhaps a, I don't I can't speak for you. Maybe I should just ask. Was it a surprise to you? It, it felt surprise. like not. It, it felt planned. like it kind of came out of the blue. No, like oh, slightly, oh wow, slightly <laughs> disrupted some plans. Um, uh, yeah, it was uh, Ingemar, who's one of the, the important characters in in the Woodman. Uh, I won't say more than that, but he, you know, he's got a role, and 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 there's lots of bits in the world that tie into him as a character and he was a real ally and was stronger than you guys i think like he yeah. was a pretty strong npc and i just rolled i think i rolled some natural 20 you know i just rolled really well for the enemies i was like oh i guess he died like oh no <laughs> i would say narratively it was incredibly satisfying i think if we'd had a battle on that scale and there hadn't been casualties meaningfully not like you know generic NPCs without a name, but there hadn't been either a party member. Well, someone actually, man of Woodersell, did die. Yes, man. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I so many people. And then there was this person who was like, Who's that? And I was like, Man. <laughs> I just had <laughs> not prepped that bit. Too much to do. Too much and to do. And it became long. a bit of a running joke. So. But it was good, I think, that Ingemar died because it felt like, wow, like this battle's had like really quite a serious consequence on the world, like beyond just our party. Like this has affected the fabric of the communities around here because of us like there are going to be consequences in a good and bad way because one of their most senior people is dead <laughs> going into the hall was good because it went from this huge battlefield like the battle map that you created an incarnate with there must have been dozens of monsters six or seven pcs a dozen npcs there were multiple built it was huge it was. And we went from that i'm looking at it right now because i've still got it set up on roll 20 um because i tend to just leave pages and yeah uh, 
there was this like huge holding area at the bottom where I had the, all the tokens. And at that point I was still using like top down, like <laughs> yeah. almost realistic looking tokens rather than just like a, the standard picture like tokens, circles yeah. that you use of a picture inside it, which are much easier to use, it turns out. Yes, strong recommend. Uh, um, but I liked that we then zoomed into the hall because it was actually quite a claustrophobic map in the hall. Once we put all the characters in, there wasn't that much space. And it went, we suddenly were in a difficulty of like, well, who's in the front line? Because the people who are not in the front line are really going to struggle to to actually get involved in Everybody in was injured. Your resources were almost completely out. You'd use your healing. Yeah. You know, you were really scraping. And it, it really forced you to draw on what was possible. And I think that's the creativity aspect is in AIM rather than 5th edition. You know, 5th edition, I feel like it's sort of like, you're a spellcaster, you cast your spells, or you run out of spell slots. Oh, there's nothing I can do. Whereas this, it's <laughs> because it's so much simpler. It's like, well, no matter, even if I got one hit point, I'd use all my expendable features. I can still, like, I'm a skilled craftsman. I can cut this piece of wood. I can make a barricade. I can bandage up a wound. I can do all this sort of role play in a way that's a bit more creative. Something I actually remember doing vividly was Thedric was, you know, he was a healer, he was a leader, he had a big impact at the beginning, uh, making the speech, which had a mechanical benefit, and he did deploy healing, I think particularly with Karhu at the Ford, because basically Karhu being a, a yeah, slayer, just absolutely held he kept the Ford, and as long as he could keep his hit points up, so Thedric was basically there just to support him. Thedric was out of all his abilities, and he dealt so little damage, like to the point where it was almost never the optimum thing to do was for him to attack. There was almost always something better. He was out of everything. We were in the hall. And I remember thinking, I think there was like a warg and an Uruk were coming in. And I was, I thought to myself, he's not going to do any damage here. And I think for the first time in my roleplay career, I used the help action to give advantage to someone else in the combat. And what I basically roleplayed it was, was that Thedric stood next to Karhu and Thedric kind of like fainted a bit, like distracted with his quarterstaff against the, the warg to give Karhu an opening. And I felt cooler not even rolling the dice. And then Karhu, you know, did big, big damage. But that's that, that creativity. Like we'd worn down to the point where I wasn't rolling any dice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think the attack had happened overnight, and so I had planned that at a certain round, I think it was the 12th round, that dawn would break, which would have a big impact. So I was like, I know that this is going to, and I'd set that all up, the timing and stuff. Again, stealing heavily from Helm's Deep, but like, who cares? Like, it's it's a great story. Just <laughs> It's a great story. Just, you know, what does it feel like? And that's kind of what you're captioning, isn't it? Like, we've talked about this before in terms of the pros and cons of running a game in such a well-known setting. Yeah. Park back to that. Make those references. Just be like, you know, you kind of want people to be like, oh, that's a bit like X in yes. Lord of the Rings. That that brings them into the immersion. Great. Good. Um, and you also see the same sort of themes being repeated through like the different ages of Tolkien's world, you know, the similar sort of stories, you know, the fall of Gondolin, the fall of Minister, you know, like all these same ideas coming out. So if there are similarities, you'd be like, well, that's that's a Tolkien way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Uh, a, a moment we must touch on because it remains one of my favourite moments I've, in the whole of our, maybe I'm going to mention the same one, the whole I think, of I our I think I know campaign. which one you're going to say because I was just thinking <clears> in my head, like we haven't even mentioned that yet. So there were a lot of named NPCs there, uh, including uh, Ingemar, who we only found out really from you later how big an important impact he could have had one way or another. And there was a lot of role play that followed. There were also named enemies on the map, including Magrick, who was a, a kind of a villain who we didn't fully know what the agenda was, but we knew that he was linked to a lot of what was going on. And we'd been kind of pulling at that thread like we knew there was something there he was dangerous um and he had a, a vendetta against the village and against us and we knew he was a threat coming at the same time he'd snuck into the village <clears throat> isambard the the deadly hobbit i mentioned earlier you'd also had, kind of to, to know has isambard had been like scouting out rafik and magrick and like seeing yes. meeting and had this really weird encounter where he'd snuck up on them but then failed a stealth check so they saw him captured yes. him but then he had this really creative way of escaping and then robbed them or something. Yeah, like he's then stole really them. Really yeah, strange yeah. series of events. Somewhere. It was really creative and really funny. But he had quite a sort, of, a, a sort of history entirely separate from the party with, with Magrick. 
there was a point the battle's raging everywhere. Magritte had snuck around the back of the Great Hall, where Isambard actually happened to be hiding, ready to ambush someone different. And Bert, playing as Isambard, ambushed Magritte, who didn't realize there was an enemy there and was just trying to sneak around. He was the trying hall. to sneak in the back of the hall. He was going to try yes. to out the back door, or get in a window. You know, that's the sort of stuff. He was kind of roguish. He he might have tried to set fire to the hall. You know, I was like, oh, this is what he would do. He's not going to get in the thick of action. He's he's going to do something really nasty. And I actually I'm trying to think, did I know that? I saw, there was something about like he was planning to do that, and then Eisenbar did his thing. So I wasn't really expecting that to happen. <laughs> Basically, Eisenbar got the jump on him, and uh, I think got a, a crit and yeah. just killed him, like in like one go. He did something, an insane amount of damage, like almost like max damage on a critical hit. On a sneak Again, attack. Because had he not was attacking that to die. I was like, well, he'll run away. He'll escape. He'll be a sort of recurring villain. Um, you know, he'll... <laughs> I had this plan for him as well. And I was like, oh, he's died. <laughs> Just... As a player great. in that moment, it was brilliant because at one end of the battlefield, we had this heroic, you know, Malbeth riding in, really like dramatic, literally the cavalry arriving. And at the other end, an equally heroic moment of one of the party killing really quite a dangerous, ominous um, enemy. And although we as players watched it happen as, as the audience, none of our characters knew it happened. Yeah. <laughs> like it was this quiet moment that happened. And it was very in keeping of him being a rogue or him being a, a treasure hunter and, you know, in the shadows. That was a, such a hilarious moment. It was just, it was just from the, the moment of like, yeah, I've killed him. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know if everybody else knew he was there until after the battle. Like, yeah, it was, yeah. So eventually dawn did rise and the orcs got disadvantaged in the sunlight and yeah. that led to the, the you know, eventually the, the party were able to, to fight their way out. Uh, I was really surprised that no player characters died and yeah. um, I didn't hold back. Uh, you know, I, I talked about, like, introducing in waves and trying to set the difficulty but I never fudged any roles. Like there was nothing, there was no, um, you know, I didn't take it easy on you guys. Just yeah. trying to set up what the challenge level was. I think there was something total like 30 or 40 orcs might be in about level three and a ring race. So quite a, quite a lot of challenge. It'd be interesting to work out like what the challenge rating actually was. <laughs> it was you wild. Know, it was, I don't it have was time brilliant. in life to work out challenge ratings, to be honest. I don't, I just don't bother. I've done it now and then, but I, it, that's a whole other conversation. Let us not detract from the joy of, uh, of the siege, which I, it remains one of my favourite sessions. And we've probably about 50 sessions on from that. And we still think about it. It had huge consequences for the game. You know, characters dying or NPCs dying, villains dying, it affected the course of events. It yeah. changed how our characters saw a lot of things, I think. Yeah, there was a lot of lessons learned. And the next thing that you did was you went to the Dwimmerhorn and went to rescue some prisoners who may or may not be important for the upcoming plot. Yes, indeed. They may or may not be important. And I definitely did not know that one of them was definitely going to be important in future. Um, <laughs> it was a brilliant moment. It was one of my favourite sessions. And I think there are a lot of lessons that I think that we as players learned, particularly going right back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that all of our actions have consequences. And if we're going to be loud and proud about getting allies, that runs a risk. Uh, it was a moment where you, your actions really made the world feel real, that the way we'd acted, we brought about this attack. And actually, I think we did reflect after the battle that, hey, if we, we could have snuck into the Dwimmerhorn and not tried to raise allies, and this whole, whole segment of the story would have been totally different. And it, it felt very real and a real success of um but then equally, like talking about success you know this was a success you do a success yeah. successfully defeated a load of orcs and one it meant that you went into the drama horn with a bit more knowledge about the abilities and yeah. capabilities that there was some sort of very high level creature there which you were very scared about when you're going to drama horn and uh you'd also cleared out a lot of the garrison. So I knew the, the number of orcs that were at the Drummerhorn. I knew how many orcs <laughs> I had sent to the siege, it, you know, adding up and down. Like I knew whatever number it was, I would take off the garrison. So when you went on to the next adventure, it was easier because of that. I loved it. A brilliant session. Loads of lessons, I think, hopefully for players, 
for lore masters i certainly did and i know that you learned a lot from from doing it yeah <sighs> fond memories of thinking back on it um this is one of the things in the podcast I've most been looking forward to talking about because it was one of my favorite moments. And I think we could briefly, if you'll humor us, talk about the podcast itself now because we've been doing now, I think this is our 14th episode when it goes out. And we've had some absolutely brilliant feedback from people who've been listening and have commented, who shared it on social media and a big shout out to the AIM subreddit, which is such a good community, I think, for sort of sharing information around the game. They've been really Valuable. supportive. Yeah. of the podcast so thank you very much to everyone there who's commented and um, please send in any uh, questions or ideas we're always up for you know tailoring our our content and and, and ideas and episodes to what would be most helpful um, something that would be a big help to us if you can is if you can like or share or review any of the episodes wherever you get your podcasts whether it's on spotify or apple or podbean uh, or we're now on apple your... which we weren't on for a while yes we've resolved that it was not the easiest thing in the world but i feel there must be a tolkien line we can use here I, i'll think of what it is any sharing or commenting liking makes a huge difference to to the podcast just extending its reach uh, and we're absolutely loving doing it and we intend to continue doing it for a very long time and, and we just want to get you as involved as possible so if you could um we'd be very grateful and uh, next time we can tackle talking about the dwimmerhorn and us laying siege to that dark fortress in a kind of light and shadow version of the siege of stony ford i think i found the uh the tolkien quote to do with apple oh good do it right and what we're not going you're not going to edit it in so we're going to have me clumsily saying there is one and then you're going to sound smart at the end by giving us what the quote is what about second breakfast <laughs> probably getting hit in the head of an apple i think that's as, as apple as we're going to get right here good No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions, and questions to thefellowshipphase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken. And we will return on the next episode of The Fellowship Phase. 